Welcome to Life Group's God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kurt Flegel, and I cannot believe that we are entering our fifth season. This, in fact, is episode one of season five of Life Group's God Heals, and so we welcome you back, or welcome you for the first time. And this is truly going to be an awesome episode because we are discussing a very important and relevant subject especially here in the West, here in the United States, and that is mental illness. Where is God in the midst of our struggles with mental illness? Well, we have a very good friend of ours, Brett Grintz, who's going to talk to us and share his story with mental illness and how God intervened and led him through that struggle. So let's just get right into it. Welcome, Brett. Nice Nice to have you. Nice to be here. Kim said something earlier as we were praying. She said, God, allow our our mess to be our message. And since we're talking about disorders, you know, emotional, mental, that kind of thing, there are some things that you and I have talked frequently about that that are your mess. Not saying, you know, like, not saying I don't have my mess, but we're specifically... We're talking about me. We're talking about your mess. (laughs) So what does your mess look like, and where have you seen God show up in that to make it your message? Well, I mean, first of all, in a general sense, the mess for all of us is sin. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest mess in the world. Right. Uh, but, but I know we're talking, in my particular case, what we have talked about recently is my bipolar disorder, which I was diagnosed long enough ago that it was actually just... I don't know why this seems important, but a little bit of trivia. It, it had just gone from being diagnosed or being called manic depressive disorder, and they had just moved it into probably with whatever level of DSM, which is the, the diagnostic manual that they use for diagnosing mental disorders. And so it was bipolar, and it was weird because I remember even when I was originally diagnosed, it didn't like connect as well. It's manic depression I'd heard of, but bipolar was new. Now... I mean, everybody kind of grasped that. When did it start, or when did you notice that there were things happening? So someplace between 23 and 24, my world just kind of collapsed in because of the birth of our daughter, which was unexpected. Hmm. Uh, I mean, we know how, I know how it works, but it was, it was, it was unexpected. The timing was definitely unexpected. Uh, we had made a commitment to, or at least a general commitment that we're going to be married for five years, kind of get ourselves established in our careers, mm. have some money saved up, kind of have some balance in our lives. Oh, balance. Uh, what a yeah. great myth that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's ever happened. So three months later, Serena got pregnant. So we ha- we uh, so Elena came, so it was a brand new father. We were poor as can be. Serena wasn't working because she was home with, with Elena. Um, I had well, I was firmly convinced that I was called to be a pastor, but specifically a pastor on the mission field. So as if not to make it difficult enough, it wasn't just that I needed to go to seminary, but I needed to go to seminary to prepare myself for being out in a completely foreign context in a different country. I couldn't afford seminary, so I found a correspondence seminary in the U.S. that I could do courses through, uh, cassette tapes uh, that I could do. And uh, let's date this. Yeah, yeah, we're going way back. <laughs> this is an old tech alert. Uh, so, so I was doing that. That was absolutely miserable. 
in every possible way. It was a total trying to stick a, a you know, a round peg into a square hole kind of thing. Mm. Because it was, <laughs> now, on this side of it, it was clear that God was not calling you to that. That was what I would, thought I was called. Okay. I was wondering, are you talking about the schooling or the calling? Well, both. So, so because the calling was a thing of, of my, my belief system, which was, and this goes into being bipolar, my, my belief system was that anything that I needed to do that God wanted me to do had to hurt, had to be miserable, had to be like the most difficult thing possible. Mm. Because it was kind of like, you know, almost like a, a Greek mythology story of, you know, just going through... Trial after trial after trial after trial to be to get wherever it was you're supposed to get at the at the other end of it, and I think the other end of it for me would have just been death. <laughs> I would have died, and then I wouldn't have had to suffer anymore. And we can get back to the theology of all this, but but anyway, so I was doing that. That was miserable. I had a you know, I was a brand new dad, and I had this you know, like any that's not that different for any other father, but especially being a poor father, it's like I've got to be working all the time so I can make sure and provide for my family. But of course, that takes me away from my family. Um, I felt totally overwhelmed, you know, blah blah blah. So, the, and then the third piece of that was that I started to um, get overwhelmed at work, so I was starting to find myself less and less able to cope with just the day-to-day activities and, and things that I was trying to do at work. And which was the job uh, at the time? At that time, I was working for UPS in their phone center and had moved into a position where I was supporting account executives. So basically, if something went wrong with a business's deliveries, then I was the person that had to fix it. So okay. that was kind of the problem solver. Which I actually loved the job. I loved the job in general, but it just that stress, I just started to get to where I wasn't able to handle it. And that was that was starting to spin out. Because mm-hmm. as I felt that I couldn't handle it, then the more every day I was having a harder time coming back to work. And so it was starting to really look like I was probably going to lose my job. Mm-hmm. And there's probably other factors in there too, but those are the big ones that I remember. So the way that I often explained that period of time in my life was that uh, it's like a juggler who has practiced really, really hard and gotten up to being able to juggle six balls. And it's like, you can, you can, as long as you do, you know, focus and, and think about what you're doing and, you know, and practice a million times, you can handle six balls. But then somebody in the audience suddenly throws a seventh ball in. And so even though you're this magnificent, amazing juggler and have been holding it all together, that one ball is too many. And when you lose one, you lose them all. Mm. And you can't just, a juggler can't lose one ball and still still have the other ones going in most in most situations, at least not in my metaphor. So they all just pretty much collapsed. So that was the moment at which I had the break that most people do with bipolar where it, it snaps, where you can no longer function in doing what you're doing. And for me, what those balls had looked like is through, especially through high school, I had made it my life's goal to be better than every other human being on the face of the planet. Mm. That that was I mean it was it was not just a minor thing. This that was where I was gonna be. That was your so goal. whatever anybody else had ever done, at least in my world, maybe it's too much to say the rest of the planet, but in my world, I was gonna do it better. For instance, I made our church break the rule for Awana. I should say it for people that don't know that it's basically a church club that looks a lot like like Boy Scouts and you learn verses and then you get little badges and mm. blah blah blah. And I had done Awanas, but then I really wanted to be a leader. 
but you couldn't be a leader unless you were, I think it was college. You had to have graduated <laughs> from high school, first year of college. Oh. So I forced them basically to let me be an Awana leader. I think it was like my junior year of high school. So I broke the rules because I was the guy that could do it and could do it so well. And I was going to be able to handle the job. And I did. And I did, you know, great job. I, I co-led two musicals in um, church. I had a 4.4 grade average. I sang in every choir that could possibly that you could possibly sing in. And we broke rules on that one, too. Because you were not allowed to be in the honor choir until your sophomore year. And myself and two friends of mine petitioned our choir director and said, we're ready now at the middle of semester, our freshman year. And he fought and fought and fought. And we like, we are good enough and you know we're good enough. <laughs> and so that was kind of how I approached life. It's like, if, if you don't think I'm good enough, I will force you. I will just break you down eventually. And the reason, and, but behind that was this theology that I still have, that still sits inside of my core, that I have to continue to just say, Lord, that is not true at all. And that is a theology of worthlessness, a theology of apathy. I had, I, I had two beliefs in how God views us, viewed me. And that is that on a really good day, if I'm doing everything right, that God will ignore me. And if I'm not doing everything perfectly that I need to be doing, then God's mad at me. So pretty much apathy was the thing I was going for. Like if God completely and totally ignores me, that's my best case scenario. Wow. Okay. So can we hold there for a second? Hold. <laughs> yeah. Theology, just so we can define the term, because I think it's good to define terms, is the knowledge of God. When we talk about the knowledge of God is knowing God, right? Identity, knowing God for his identity. Your knowledge or theology of God, your knowledge of God, was that at best he was apathetic towards you. At worst, he was Zeus with the lightning bolts. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? What, what, how, did, how did that perspective develop in you that that's how you saw God in relation to you? So I was born bipolar. The, the question becomes, how much can you manage it? How excessive is it? And at what point do environmental factors get to the point where it, it triggers you and it, and it breaks? Um, and for most people, it is in their 20s. And so that's where it was for me. So that, it, that's really not all that unusual that I experienced that. Bipolar manifestations are starting to be diagnosed early and earlier mm. in kids. And I think it's because our world is just that brutal. Um, and, you know, things that kids are having to go through and traumas that they're experiencing are, you know, making it different. That part of my brain was from the day I, I mean, the, from the day I can really think about what I thought of God, that's what I thought of God. Hmm. I mean, that's kind of who he was for me. It wasn't like, like I thought one way and I had a healthy view of God and then all of a sudden or over time I could say, oh, I had not a healthy view. And it wasn't taught to you. Well, it and that's what I was gonna say. There, the church, the church culture that I lived in was, uh, and I think a fairly typical American church theology, and that is that we're saved. Uh, a healthy church, of course, is going to say that we're saved by grace, and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves to earn it. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, paid everything for us in full. That coming to him, he will he will uh, forgive us all of our sins and reconcile us to God. I mean, that's that's the basic Christian theology of salvation. But the problem is, 
in the environment I was in, and I know a lot of other churches that were this way, then work starts to really creep in after your salvation and before you get to the point of going to heaven. And it starts to become, uh, you, you fall back into this pattern of you've got to earn your salvation. Mm-hmm. And, and so for an example, a really dumb example in our church, uh, but again, all over the land in the 70s and 80s, was a board, a really poorly made wooden board mm-hmm. that had a slide-in thing for numbers and letters. And one of them was attendance. So you could see every week how many people had come to church. What the other one that I remember was was offering, and this is how much people had given. So publicly displayed right there in the front of the church, next to the cross, is something that weekly reminds you that somehow there is a good and a bad. We're displaying it to show that somehow we've done something, and what we've done is good, and this must make God happy. Because that was kind of the way that the that was. The culture, the way that I felt it is that, is that, yes, Jesus saved me, but now I still need to work really, really hard to make Mm. it all okay. Bipolar, manic depression, it has its two sides. It has a depressive side and it has the mania side where where you're acting in a way that that is inappropriate, that might even be in some cases illegal, that is your emotions going unchecked. It's, it's your emotions without any filter that says, um, that says these are societal norms and this is what I should or shouldn't do. So I was able to sit on top of that mania by just keeping myself really, really busy. Like I said, I was involved in everything. I was the best at everything. It, it, even the things that I failed at, I quit them strategically because there were a couple of different sports that I quit, but I, I quit them with really, really good excuses. And so it was okay. And like I wrestled and then I quit, but I was 98 pounds at the time. So it was pretty easy to, for people to accept that I had quit wrestling. Um, the reality <laughs> was I quit wrestling because I just knew I was going to lose and I couldn't handle that. Okay, uh, so the question then is in that, was that for other people's perception or your view of yourself that it would look okay? I always felt like I was a failure. Again, going back to God apathetic or God just ignoring or God mad at me, I always felt like I was failing. So all of these things protected me. I put so many layers of success on there that you would have to pull so much off to ever actually realize I was a failure. Nobody would really pay attention to the fact that who I really was deep down inside, which was a failure. Yeah. A disappointment. Uh, uh, never, I never could quite measure up to you know, where, where I, I felt like God wanted me to be. This is what my brain told me was true. Mm. Um, and and that is a bipolar brain. I mean, a, a bipolar brain just is, is throwing things at you that just aren't true. I mean, it's telling you things that just aren't true. And it's giving you worldviews and belief systems that just aren't true. Which is why after I got diagnosed, I needed a lot of therapy. But mm. we'll get to that. We can get to that in a second. <laughs> Uh, so what was the break? What did the break look like? Well, that break was in my 20s. So what I had managed to do in my life, with a couple of exceptions, has, was to run ahead of my failures mm. and to keep everything going. Again, those, those balls that I was juggling. And my point in saying those different things that happened, the birth of my daughter, being poor, uh, you know, not having much money and feeling like I had to work all the time, feeling that I was called to seminary, 
or called to, to being a pastor slash evangelist slash missionary mm-hmm. and that not working out, those pieces, all those things, all of a sudden, I couldn't handle anymore. I couldn't control it. I couldn't keep it all together. And because I couldn't, that's when I started to completely be unable to function in life, period. What did that look like, though? Well, that looked like, for for instance, at my job, I was spending more time in the bathroom than I was at my little cubicle mm. because I just, nobody knew I was there. I could just stand in there and I could just kind of hang out. And very few people will come bother you in the, ba- in the bathroom. <laughs> and so, um, uh, literally every day it was becoming more and more and more. But again, I was so good in doing what I was doing that when I was on the floor, when I was sitting at my little cubicle and I was and I was working with the you know these customers or whatever I was able to do the job well enough that I wasn't technically falling behind on the job Hmm. I just was putting in less and less time but it started to feel like the shoe was going to drop and I was going to lose that job oh because you said that earlier that you felt like you were getting to a point where they were going to fire you you're going to lose the job but that was perception not reality no I think it was real Oh. I think it was reality. I think that um, I think the fact that I hadn't gotten fired as up to that point was just a blessing. I mean, it was just God looking out for me because I, I probably should have been. I mean, I knew of the problem, but I had no idea what to, to how to handle it. So, so all of what I described in high school, junior high, high school, that was that was mania. Mm. I mean, that was me living manic right under the the cusp of of completely losing it and being you know to the point where like i said i started to you start to do thrill seeking kind of things and and uh you do things that are illegal and blah 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 Um, i wasn't there but i was i was just constantly sitting right on that edge of just completely flaming Mm. out the best example i can give is that my senior year my freshman year of college I had a friend of mine who my best friend from high school who also was at the same junior college that I was and she had a huge party at her house and a lot of them were people that we knew from from high school it was uh, fairly out of control medium out of control I don't know it would you know where you put that but there was a lot of alcohol and there was a lot of drinking and um and I was at the back of her apartment she had a, a staircase. I'm doing this like people can see this. Um, <laughs> she had a staircase that um, it was freestanding. It was attached at the top of the landing, like a like a two story um, motel kind of thing. And I was standing on her back fence, and I was just goofing around. And so I jumped up on the edge of the staircase, and I was kind of hanging on. And I think my goal was to try to like move my way up, rock climb, basically up. Wow. Somebody And then somebody grabbed my leg. And I'm like, dude, do not grab my leg. I'm like, hanging here, you know, don't grab my leg. But they were drunk, so they thought it was funny. So they just kept pulling, and they just kept putting more pressure and more pressure. Finally, I just let go, and I dropped, because there was no choice there. And her lawn was on a little tiny slope hill, and it was cold that night, and it, there was dew on the grass. So when my foot hit, it immediately oh. slipped, and all my weight hit, and my ankle just snapped like, instantly. So I go around to the front of the apartment. I guess I was raised well. I felt the need to let Denise know that I had to leave. 
So, so I knock on the door, and this guy that answers this guy's name, we called him Bear, I don't remember his name, big old tall a basketball player from, from high school. And he looked at me, and I'm like, hey, can you just let, and I mean, I'm like in so much pain, but I'm trying to hold it together. I'm like, can you just let Denise know um, I got to go, I hurt, I hurt my ankle. And he's like, what happened? And I said, I think I might have broken it. And then he's like, and then he just burst into laughter and he's like, dude, you're the only sober person here, which I think was true. I don't think there was any other sober person there, but that was my life was I was, I always found a way to make sure that everybody knew who I was at any given moment, Hmm. that what I was, that whatever I did stuck out. And, and that was the, that was the manic side of, of things. But when the crash happened, and I had a, a true mental breakdown, then it then the depression just sucked all everything that I ever had out of me. So we moved from where we were. We were actually here. We were in San Luis Obispo at the time. And we moved back in with my parents. My mom and Serena had... Have I acknowledged? Serena's my wife. I need to tell the <laughs> microphone now. Um, oh. My mom and Serena had been talking... I, I say behind my back, but that's the wrong. I don't mean it in a bad way. I didn't know what the conversation was they were having because I was no longer in a mental place where I could have had a part of the conversation. She was telling my mom, we have got to get someplace safe because he's going to lose his job. I don't know how we'll survive with, with the baby, uh, with your grand granddaughter. And so my mom just said, come back and look with mm. me. What Serena told me is, hey, we've been talking about you getting a different career because answering phones at UPS isn't a great career. What about teaching? You can do that in a year. You can get your credential in a year, and then you can, you know, turn around and have a career. And I'm like, okay, I don't care about teaching, but okay, anything I can do in a year sounds good. So that was kind of the the reason that she told me we were moving back. But again, it was really because she was just trying to save save our marriage and save us and save the baby and so the depression then became something that made me completely unable to function. Somehow I made it through that year doing the credential program. Wow. But um, I was spending most of my time in bed. And when I say most, I mean like probably 75% of my time in bed. I was fantasizing about two options and uh, one of them would be one of the ones that I remember because it was the second story apartment was that the roof would collapse and just fall on me and crush me and I would die. And the other one that I wasn't as thrilled about, I liked that one. That was, I mean, if they had to rank them, that was not a bad one. The other one was that the built that our apartment would catch on fire oh. and then I would burn to death. Wow. And I was like, Ooh, I think that'll hurt, but I didn't care. But both of those had the commonality of the fact that I wouldn't have committed suicide oh, in yeah. my mind because I didn't do it. It would just happen and I just would leave. So that's what it looked like at the worst of it all. I mean, that's, that was the low point of my whole experience as far as mental illness goes, is that, that point at which, the point at which you're just waiting to die. Wow. The only thing you see past the pain at that point is death. That's the that's the escape. Mm -hmm. That's the way through. What was the relationship like with Serena? 
your wife through the microphone. <laughs> You're already upset. Oh, now, now we said it twice. Now I'm just being redundant. My gorgeous wife, no, make sure you don't edit that out. Um, I'm glad you said it. <laughs> a little more awkward if Kurt says it, just slightly. Uh, so I know, you know, I know exactly what I was experiencing during that time. I'll never 100% know what she was experiencing, which is true of anybody. You know, if it's a major illness or, you know, something that somebody's going through, walking with somebody through cancer or whatever, and then there's the person that's going through it, and then there's the, the person that's, or people that are experiencing it watching that person and they're very different experiences that um, seems like it's true with every i guess that's true yeah but i but it becomes more intense i think sure. as the as the experience is more intense than than what you're going through is more intense well that's true um, yeah and so as a young mom she now had full responsibility for our daughter because i was not functioning she no no longer had a companionship or partnership relationship with me as her husband, that was gone. Which are pretty two pretty hard hits for a young woman, person, you know, married, uh, to have to go through. With a new child. Situations. Anyway, right, with a new child. So one thing, if you're a single mom and you have a baby, I mean, that's, that's hard enough, but it's another thing to be a married person and basically be a single mom, which mm. is what she was. And, and so then her relationship to me was no longer a partnership relationship, it was no longer... A married relationship where, you know, each of us were, were doing what we could for one another and ministering to one another and, and helping each other out and all those things. It was just her. And it was her either parenting me or trying to love me and understand and just be able to say it's not his fault. And so she went back and forth between those all the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember. I mean, I remember... There was more, I think there was more than one time where, where she was literally pulling the bed sheets off of me and I was holding on to them with everything I had in my power and she was just screaming at me to get up and she was screaming at me to, to go to work. She was getting desperate. I mean, she was getting to that point where she wasn't sure we could be together anymore. And she's had so many friends over the years that are like, why didn't you just divorce him? Because people divorce for a lot less. And to her, it was just not... It wasn't an option. Wow. I mean, she had made her commitment before God that she was my wife and that she was never going to divorce me. But she was starting to have very long conversations with herself mostly and trying to wrestle through, do I leave, physically leave, physically put distance between us because I, so that she could find a job, so that she could find some way to survive, so that her daughter would be okay. And that was the other thing that I, I thought about a lot is I, I had hope there was so many times she left the house and I heard the door close and I thought maybe she'll just never come back because that would be a blessing because then I didn't have to feel guilty and I had, you know, done our relationship in. So it was an agony for both of us, but I think, but in totally different ways. I mean, our stories are very, very different. Mm. The facts are the same, but our, how we were dealing with it, how we were feeling. Right, you know, perspective. Because so he, we did not understand that mental illness, when you're mentally ill, you can't just will yourself to get better. Yeah. But neither one of us knew. It wasn't her fault, it wasn't my fault. And obviously we're sitting here having this conversation, you're not in the bed anymore, so things changed. Right, yeah. So where did you see God in this? How did he break through and move the story forward? 
Well, I mean, again, I have to reiterate the fact that the fact that Serena did not leave me. Serena did not divorce me. That was God protecting both of us. I don't know of an American culture where divorce wasn't normal. She had that choice. She stuck this out because she was willing to stand for what she knew was right before the Lord because that covenant meant something to her. Mm. And so I couldn't appreciate that then. I wasn't in a place I could appreciate that. But I certainly appreciate it now. I mean, so that didn't have a Had my wife left, had Serena left, had she have taken Alina with her, there's nothing about my life now that would be the same. God was speaking to her when I couldn't and speaking to her to do something that didn't make any sense for the situation. And God was doing that to protect both of us and to protect Alina and to eventually protect Kayla because there wouldn't have been any Kayla. Um, had we not been together. So, so I mean, that was the first place where God was there that entire time watching over us. Like you said, to protect both of you. Well, it's very clear how that was a protection for you because she was outside of the situation, able to speak into it and stick it out. But how is that, a, just from your perspective, how is that a protection for her not divorcing? Well, because it. I think I'm a pretty good guy. <laughs> I, think that, I, mean, I think that our relationship has been uh, an incredible partnership. I mean, God's given us 25 years of an incredible, uh, amazing relationship. This is a really good opportunity. You know, if you're going to say, you know, here's top 10 divorce reasons when just in our own flesh and our own thinking, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, you know or that's oh that's like a number six. That's a pretty good one. I mean, I put that way up there that most people would have been like, yeah, you could have left him and it would have been fine. Yeah, you know, like nobody would bat an eye. Everybody would have understood. Mm-hmm. Um, so she she lived out that sacrificial commitment to that covenant that has allowed us to have the incredible relationship that we have. Mm. For not just for us, but for both of our girls, and hopefully for a whole lot of other people, you yeah. know, that we've been able to mm-hmm. to minister to, um, and and know, you know, get to know. Yeah. Oh yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the good. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the. <laughs> so so those are great, but those didn't those didn't deal with the bipolar. Yeah. The the bipolar was was uh, because I had a man who who counseled me as a therapist, he was my therapist, who was extremely perceptive and quickly figured out that I was bipolar and said, we've got to get you to a psychiatrist. And, you know, he said, I've got a guy I can refer you to. Got me referred to that psychiatrist and then quickly I was put on meds. For bipolar, I, I don't know all the other, you know, all the other mental illnesses that are similar to bipolar, but I, I've heard similar stories and that is Specifically with bipolar, it is very unlikely that the first regimen of meds that you're put on will work. Mm. Because it all depends on your physiology, it all depends on your neurology, it's just uh, the way your body metabolizes things, the way your hormones work, all those things. So, so there's, there's multiple courses of treatment and the, fat, and the chance of, like I said, a chance of maybe the first one you try actually working. I don't know of anybody outside of myself 
that the very first thing medication they were put on that it's it they've continued to be successful with it and for me it was successful for about 20 years wow. um, the lithium worked well for about 20 years and then it started not working so well so we've had to change a little bit but um to be in a place where god brought me to this man who was a christian man a uh, therapist brought me to him he quickly realized what was going on but he wasn't a medical doctor he wasn't a psychiatrist he was a psychologist so at least in the state of california you you can't prescribe meds so right that's why he had to get me to to a psychiatrist and then that same that same person i continued in a in a counseling relationship with him for probably a year and a half and a lot of things were accomplished over that year and a half but the biggest one was he retaught me who God really is, who I really was, how God really sees his children, what that's supposed to look like, and began to teach me how to reframe, to a certain degree, every decision I make and every decision anybody makes that I interact with, and reframe it within the framework of truth instead of a framework of delusion, which is really what I had. And, and the irony is when I first went to his practice and filled up the little questionnaire thing when I was first going, he referred me to one of his intern lackeys, and <laughs> that guy was horrible for me. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> no, he knows. Because then what happened is, so I went to like four or five sessions with that guy, and I would come out every night, and Serena would pick me up, and... You know, the question she would ask is, how did it go? And I said, well, I'm more depressed now than I was when I walked through the room. And I was really going there because of depression. But I just quit. And when I quit, or again, talk about screwed up belief system. I had, I believed at the time that we moved back to Portville to live with my parents and we started this process. I believed that all psychology was demonic. Mm. Um, All therapy that was not biblically based therapy and when i say biblically based therapy i had very narrow view because when you believe in your heart that the best you can get from god is apathy you become legalistic very quickly because legalism then also becomes a shield for which you can deflect your own inadequacies by pointing out everybody else's Mm. which is also why i had to be so good at everything because that gave me the authority yeah. Uh, that gave me, you know, I was the smart one. I was the good student. I was the good musician. I was the good Christian. So therefore, people would listen to me. And so my judgment meant something. And when I did that, that was a good, great deflection. So within that legalism, one of the manifestations of that was this this idea that all therapy was demonic. Because Freud was a wackadoodle. Because he was wrong, that everybody was wrong. And mm. so for me to step through that door to begin with was a huge thing. Wow. And so then for him to stick me with the wrong guy, once I mm. flamed out of that one, I told Serena, I am never going back. Because this just proved exactly, you know, what I believed. And it was, I think, almost a year later that I went back. And Dan's like, do you want to do this again? And I said, only if I see you. So I will not, I refuse to see anybody else. So I'm sorry, if I'm not pointing it out to people clearly, hopefully they can re-listen to the, the podcast a couple times and figure out God is all over this. Yeah. I mean, God's everywhere in this. Yeah. Everywhere. Well, 
Can we talk specifically, if you don't mind, about the things that Dan taught you that reframed God's identity and your identity? It was so long ago. Let, let's go back to the thing I keep saying over and over again. The two, the two options I had was God apathy, or God apathetic, and ignoring me, or God mad at me. And just the plain and simple truth that we know from Scripture is that neither one of those things are true. In fact, neither one of those things are possible for believers. Because if they are, then the cross doesn't mean anything. Right. If Jesus Christ did not go to the cross to atone, uh, to cover every single sin any human being could ever commit, then that means there's always sins left over. And if there's sins left over, then we cannot ever be in the presence of a holy God because he can't be where sin is. And the, so and the question is, is which sin is left over? And then there's a whole... Right bunch of uncertainty right, and insecurity. Right. Yeah, the worst ones, or maybe the little ones, or the big ones, or whatever. So what he was teaching me was grace, which was a word I had heard many, 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 many times in my life. Very churchy, good And word. had taught other people, you know, and done Bible studies, because I was the guy who did Bible studies. It, it came up all the time in Awanas, and I memorized lots of verses, because I had I had memorized up. I had so many verses memorized because, again, I had to beat whoever else had a lot of memory. You know, so whoever the next best person was memorizing verses, I had to beat them. Mm. So, and I'm sure a lot of those had the word grace in them. But I think the problem was I, I knew the word grace. I'm not sure I actually understood the concept because I couldn't allow the thought that God had provided it for me. And therefore, I could not dispense it to other people. And that's probably been the biggest shift for me personally. That piece of it has definitely changed. I hate being a legalist. Every time I start to move towards that, I, I, I try to run away from that. Mm. But I still struggle with it in my own life. Um, I think many of us do, most of us do at our weakest moments. But Dan taught me that that is true. You know, whether I totally get it all the time or not that God's grace was true and God's grace was all-encompassing. And years later, I would end up in a recovery group with a guy who every time he prayed always says, he would say, uh, God, you know I'm your favorite kid. <laughs> and which sounds really arrogant, but then you realize every single, every single follower of Christ can pray that same prayer mm. because we are, which... We can't do that as people. We can't. Favorite means you got to have one favorite. You can't have everybody's your favorite. Doesn't From an that. earthly perspective. From an earthly perspective. But God can do it. And so um, that is the concept of grace, is that we are all his favorite kid. Every single moment of every single day in every single situation. Yeah, that's Whether we're doing what we should do or not. Um as the reformers would, would say when they talk about being an image bearer, whether we are being good image bearers of God or not, or lousy image bearers of God, God still loves us right. just as much. I'm not sure it took us a year and a half to get to that, but like, like we probably covered other things, but that's the piece that was missing. That's the piece I never understood. Mm. And that's the only piece that matters mm. to a certain degree. Like if you understand that, if you can accept that, which is to say, accept the Lord and his love and let go and give it to him. And see, and that was the other part, the part that I still struggle with is wanting to control it all. Because 
that was the way of me proving that I was okay. Um, and since God wasn't going to necessarily, God wasn't really going to ever be happy with me anyway, then the best I could do is control what I could control. Mm. And, um, and that struggle is still there. And so, again, that concept of grace is that concept of letting that control go and letting the Lord take control in every part of my life. And that's really still continues to be very, very hard for me. Yeah, I think, I think for all of us it's hard because it's the idea the idea that we're all God's favorite comes down to this understanding of or at least affirmation of the fact of God's infinite nature we are all finite we live in in a universe where there's beginnings and endings where there's limitations on energy and resources and so everything we look look around and see everything has like a finite nature to it and now we're talking about we're talking about a, three beings who are infinite infinite in their community with each other and their complete give, giving of of themselves to each other never holding back from one another giving and receiving completely in perfect unity and that it's infinite in nature and then out of that infinitude I love that word infinitude that they relate to us as finite creatures. Well, it's not surprising to me that atheists look at God, at Jesus, at the Christian faith, and go, that's ridiculous. Because from a finite standpoint, it is ridiculous. Because an infinite God makes no sense to a finite creature. It just makes no sense. So what we don't understand is what we run from. What is unknown to us is what we run from. And we've tried to figure something else Mm -hmm. out. And here's the great thing about God's infinite love. It is the very thing we can't understand and scares us. And so what we don't understand and what is unknown to us, we run from. And God in his infinite love keeps coming after us because he's infinite love. The very thing that makes us run is the very thing that always wins us back. Mm. And he has no end to the patience and the joy and the love that he has for us. So the very thing that makes us cut and run is the the thing that brings us back. And for me, in this season, it is trusting, learning to trust more and more and more that God is the safest place on earth. There is no one or nothing else that is infinite not my wife or anyone else. And so I've learned through the years, through trial and error and lots of pain, of putting my trust in people more than God, that that don't work. Mm-hmm. And that, though I don't understand it, and that's the point, that I can come to God and say, God, I don't love like you. In the past, that was, inse- that was, that was an insecure statement. I don't love like you meant, out of pride, that I can't handle that. I, I cannot handle the fact that I don't love like you. And so I run from that. Now, that acknowledgement does not put insecurity in me and a desire to run from God. Me saying, God, I don't love like you is a place of safety because, of course, he's infinite. I could never love like him. But what it does is no longer makes me run away from him. 
more and more often, sometimes it still does, but more and more often it draws me in to go, so I don't love like you. I need a greater experience of your love. The more I confess that honestly before him, the more I'm ready to receive more of his, his love. And the more I receive it, the more I reflect it. I reflect God's love to other people to the degree I'm receiving it from him. And it comes from my acknowledgement and honesty with no insecurity. And that has changed the ballgame for me. I make it kind of a, a mantra might be a word that people are uncomfortable with. But in my prayers, it is, it is a line I say a lot, you're the safest place on earth. You're infinite love, and I don't even get it. I don't understand it, but I accept it now. And that's the thing that's been the biggest change. I don't understand, but I accept what I don't understand, and I come anyway. When you're talking about that, there's that song that, actually, I, I learned it when we were, not this time I went to church with you guys, but the last time I went, um, the first two lines, it's of Jaira. It's like, I'll never be more loved than I am right now. I wasn't holding, I wasn't holding you up, so how could I ever let you down? You know, I mean, because everything you were sharing, I was just like, oh my gosh. Like, that was so much of, like, a lot of the things that we were just talking about, that Kurt and I were talking about yesterday during our meeting, about, you know, how I felt about uh, everything that happened in Cayucas in my youth ministry, and how, you know, I felt like a failure, and I've been holding on to it. Because I was super depressed. Mm. I was... <laughs> I mean, it was a struggle most of the time, or half the time, especially towards the end, to just show up. And I was so mad at God for putting me in that situation. Because I was like, the kids deserve better. You know, that's the performance right. aspect right. of that. I'm like, the kids deserve better than this. Because like, I was never surprised that you were going through this. Hello. <laughs> but like, he's like, you weren't laying me down because this is where I put you. And it wasn't a surprise to me what you were going through in that season. So how can you say you let me down when I put you there in the first place? It wasn't your responsibility to do anything other than show up when I asked you to. Hmm. So Jaira has been on my playlist ever since I looked it up on YouTube. I'm just like, those two lines always hit me. Same again. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I can do to let you down. Hmm. That is like my, right now, it's lately it's been my mantra, like of, remember, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make you love, him love you less. His love is infinite, so it's not going to grow or diminish. There's nothing we can add to God. Right. right? There's nothing, so he can never be disappointed with us because he has no expectations of us adding anything to him. He is our power and energy. He is our wisdom. He is our knowledge. So when he gives of his love, it's unconditional. And then when you think about the relationship of the Trinity, you've got three people that are always, always finding ways to love the other person. Yes. And so this, the only thing that exists in the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is just love. Perfect love. And they need absolutely nothing. Right. So God did not create Adam and Eve because he was lonely. He created them because he wanted human beings to enjoy the same love that he has within the Godhead, within that triune relationship. 
he wanted us to have as much of an understanding as, as we could possibly have of that. I mean, it's way more than we could ever handle. Right, Because right, we're human. Right. Like, we couldn't... It would kill us to a certain degree. I mean, it, we, we it could would destroy never, us. Yeah. So I think it's easy to look at our relationship with God. I mean, it, it, it is very easy and say, oh, I need to do the right thing because then that will make him happy. Or I need to do the right thing because then that will make God look good. Well, no, you, you can't make God look bad. That's right. the that's the benefit of being perfect. <laughs> is there's no way to make him look bad. When I let go of that pressure on myself, when I release that lie and can just say, I want to do this because I will be more like Jesus is. There isn't anything greater that I could possibly do. Mm. I want to enjoy that. I want to be mm. like him. I want other people to see him in me. But I'm under no illusion uh, or expectation that I'm going to do that perfectly. You, you saying that, like, right? We can't, we can't make God look bad. I thought immediately of the plagues in Egypt, which, if you look at the plagues by themselves for a moment, they are these ten thing events that happened in Egypt, that um, where God's power overcame something in Egypt and messed it all up. That the Egyptians worshipped as God. Right? Like the Nile had blood in it. They worshipped the Nile River as a god. The sun went dark, raw, the mm-hmm. sun god, right? Mm-hmm. They, god blotted out the sun. How did that happen? Two things happened to, in, in conjunction with each other to create God's being glorified through the plagues. Moses' obedience and Pharaoh's disobedience. Mm-hmm. And both, both together. Still pointing to him. God, if Moses, God worked through Moses who came in alignment and agreement with God, and Moses was blessed through being in alignment with God. He glorified God through his obedience and found blessing in that. Pharaoh disagreed and fought against God, and God glorified himself despite Pharaoh's disobedience. Neither one could make God look bad, but one enjoyed the process and one did not. And that's where love comes in. Religion and legalism is the, what the word I would say is called obligation. Right. God's love and a relationship with him is the word I call invitation. Like, I will beat myself up over feeling anxious and insecure mm-hmm. from an earthly perspective, but from God's perspective, it is the gaslight coming on, which is an invitation to do what? Fill it up. Fill it up. So my anxiety, my insecurity, my sin, all those things are actually an empty cup that I'm being invited to lift up, to be filled up. It's invitation. Mm-hmm. That's the purest word I can think of for what God, what God, a relationship with God looks like. Everything is invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. For I am lowly of spirit, and I am not standing over you judging you. I'm at your feet washing your feet. Come down here with me. So, yeah, that's the difference from an earthly perspective and seeing things from a heavenly perspective. And so more and more, I'm just asking God, show me everything through your eyes. Let me see. 
And I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. Well, and I feel like we're winding down. Yes. <laughs> can I can I add one other thing? Yeah, and then and, I would like you to pray for, it, for oh, everyone okay. listening. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, life hurts, God heals. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? And you were asking me some of that. And I don't think I've really gotten to uh, the thing that I think about the most. That is yeah, the please. difference. Had, had, so this is, had God not have intervened at that point, had I still been, you know, mentally, untreated, mentally ill, what would that look like versus now? And the, and you and I have talked tons we, we, uh, about uh, pornography addiction. That I mean, I that started for me when I was like twelve years old, which is all a whole other interesting thing. Because so add that to it, mm. and so I had to have layers of protection even deeper, so nobody ever ever knew that. Mm. Um, so I could hide that. And it wasn't until my twenties that I was willing to admit it that 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 was what was going on. And and the interesting thing is, it's right in that same time frame that the Lord saved me. So I don't think there's any. I don't. I don't think that was an accident that I finally got to where I admitted the deepest point of shame, the thing that I had hidden the most in my life, when I finally was willing to open up about that, then the Lord came into my life. Mm. And I, I think that, so he was just waiting it out. Because mm. I had been raised in the church, so I knew the gospel, and I heard the gospel, and I'd even said a prayer uh, at one point in my life, uh, but I but I did not have a true relationship with him because what he needed was for me to let go mm. and and to to give that up. But in that, with the with the pornography issue, it it became I mean it continued to become an issue, but it, it came to a point where I really wanted to deal with it. So I found a curriculum that I was that I wanted for me to try to help me work through that, so I could begin to have victory in that area. But when I went to this training, I thought, well, if it's good enough for me, I bet there's one or two other people in the universe that might have, you know, the same struggle. And, uh, and I found a few more of them, uh, kind of <laughs> gathered them up, you know, in a group. And then we formed this group and, uh, it lasted about 10 years. And over the course of those 10 years, I can think of, I think four different guys that as I got to know them, that I went, I think you're bipolar. Like, I couldn't say anything else because I didn't know any other thing. But that was a thing. I mean, I knew you that knew one. It. I knew that one. And I'm like, look, I'm not a psychiatrist. I might be wrong, but I think a lot of what's going on here. Because there's a high correlation between, I mean, there's a ton of research out there. There's a high correlation between inappropriate or unhealthy or risky sexual behaviors and bipolar. Because that goes along with the mania. Hmm. And so, so, at first it was surprising to me. I'm like, wait. I think all these bipolar people are ending up in my group, and I don't know why, because I didn't know about that, you know, mm. that there was a connection there. But out of the four, I'm pretty sure that three of them were diagnosed bipolar. So like 75% is pretty good for a layperson to uh, be diagnosing people with mental illness. <laughs> and I have had hundreds of conversations with people outside of that where somebody else in their family is bipolar, or I've just been able to share what it is like to be mentally ill, because I wear it as a badge of honor. Because for me, my identity isn't in being bipolar. My identity is in Christ. But right. but it's like, look how messed up I should be. And I know, I mean, it's like, hey, I know I'm barely functioning, but I'm doing pretty well. Like, like look at what Jesus has done to bring this mess. And you talked about yeah. mess, right? And, and bring that into a place where... 
where I, I do okay most of the time and I'm able to function well. And, uh, and have I have a that rich marriage. Back. And I have a phenomenal marriage and I have two great girls and I've had a you know incredible teaching career and I've had tons of opportunities to minister to people and most bipolar people do not do well. That is a piece of who I am and such a big piece of me, who I am. It has been given me an opportunity to give God glory over and over and over again for letting me be bipolar and mm. all that that's meant and all that you know, mm. we went through. Um, so in our church last week, we just hit, we've been going through Romans and we just hit Romans 8. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. What is it, 26? That God works all things uh, together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 28. Is it 28? Yeah. But um, those are the, I mean, my experience, that's one of those experiences where I can look down the lens of 25 years ago mm. and say, oh, yeah, God worked incredible mm. things that were good out of that. So experience was horrible. But God has redeemed it and God has used it. And, you know, and I'm glad it's in the, the what do they say, rear view mirror. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really don't want to go through it, that again. Uh, but, but totally. Mm. You know, it was exactly what he wanted. And, and thus your mess has become your message. It's like every single story of our lives, if for those that are in a relationship with him, God's always the hero. Yeah. And that's mm. what I would say. God's mm. always the hero. Yeah. Well, pray. Would you, would you mind? Mm. Oh, Lord, I'm tired. <laughs> it's just a lot to think about and, and process and um, Lord I, I know that there are people right now listening to what we're saying that are in the middle of a mess either because of their own decisions or somebody else's decisions or uh, just the environment that they find themselves in I don't diminish that pain I don't diminish what it is to to suffer, Lord, and to, and to pretend like that's just, we should just put a smile on our face and pretend like it's all okay, Lord, because it, it, it isn't. It hurts deeply sometimes. Lord, but we know that you never stop loving us, Lord, and you, you never stop reaching your hand out to us and inviting us to hold on to you, Lord, and sometimes there's nothing else we can hold on to except for you. But I just pray that if anybody is listening and they have not yet handed the reins of their lives over to you, that you they would do it right, right now, Lord, in this moment. Or to surrender whatever it is right now that is making life so hard, so difficult. And they would let you, Lord, reach down just begin to walk with you through their pain. Lord, I ask specifically, Lord, if it, if it is something that is a mental illness, Lord, uh, you would give people the wisdom to know what they need to do to get help. Meds are good when administered properly, Lord, and by people who know what they're doing. Lord, you've, you've made some really, really, really smart people over the years that have found ways to deal with these situations, Lord, and um, 
to guide people through. In the same way with godly therapists, Lord, we're just so grateful. Lord, I know it seems weird that we would have to pay people to listen to us, but, <laughs> but sometimes that's okay. Lord, sometimes we, we want to be pointed in the right direction, Lord, to get help. And if, um, if it's a situation like it was for me, Lord, that I just, my thinking was so screwed up, Lord, my understanding of you was so wrong that you would um, help in whatever way it takes, Lord, that you would help people to begin to understand you as who you are, that you are, as Kurt said, your love is infinite. Lord, you are not coming from a place of weakness ever. Lord, you are always coming from a place of strength, and therefore we can trust you with everything. Mm -hmm. We can recognize, Lord, that you are our rock, and you are our salvation. Lord, and just like a mother bird does with newborn chicks, Lord, you come in and you surround us with your wings. Lord, you cover us and protect us. And Lord, we have nothing in our lives that should cause us to feel like we need to run from you. Lord, Jesus paid for everything that we could ever have to worry about. Our sins are gone. Our sins are forgiven. Lord, there's nothing but joy. There's nothing but love. There's nothing but hope. So I just pray right now, Lord, for um, every single person who's listening to us, Lord, that they would feel joy, and they would feel hope, and they would feel peace. Because you, God, are the hero of every story. And we just love you, and we thank you that you never give up on us, and you always love us. And we're always your favorite kids. Precious in the holy name. Amen. 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 Brett, thank you for being so honest. I don't know any other option. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Sometimes maybe too honest. Uh, well, we I, I can't speak for anyone else. I can only speak for me. And I appreciate too honest. So, <laughs> so thank you. This is great. Yeah, huge that you were willing to come on and share this. There's power in this. So thank you. You're welcome. Hanging out with the two of you isn't the worst thing in the world. Yeah. I agree. I agree with <laughs> Not that. Not too bad. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Life Hurts, God Heals. We really hope it has encouraged you and enriched your life. If you're looking for more encouragement, more enrichment, more on a personal level, reach out to us. I offer my services to you as a coach to help you deal with struggles that keep you stuck in the past, help you practice God's presence in the present, and or notice the God-given desires that he has placed in you and help you discover how to turn those into goals and help you meet those goals. So if any of this sounds like it would be helpful to you, please reach out to us at lifehurtsgodheals2020 at gmail.com. That's lifehurtsgodheals2020 at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, since God is perfect love, you are perfectly loved. So let yourself be loved. Mm-hmm.